0: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
1: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
0: Good evening, listeners.
1: Good evening, listeners.
2: You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Celine
0: Ross. And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages.
2: This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Jose Aguilar. Jose is a first-year PhD student in the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Welcome, Jose.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me here.
2: We're really looking forward to talking to you, and we get to talk to you about something that a lot of people are talking about these days. So maybe you can start us off with just kind of the two-sentence, short elevator pitch of what your research is and what you look into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my research mainly focuses on the safety aspect of AI. Uh, that's a very broad term, I guess to say, but I mainly focus on making systems in our intelligence attention sa- safer and specifically work with reinforcement learning. So um, pretty much, you know, making AI do what we want it to do.
0: I guess to start off, just to make sure everyone's on the same page, how would you define AI? Yeah, question? so
1: that's a very uh, that's a very good um, thing to ask. Um, I guess the textbook definition is that AI will be um, any system or computational system or anything that can really make a decision, right? So for those that are not coding, even an if statement will count as technical AI because there is a decision to be made there. In general, anything that can exhibit some kind of intelligence, that's kind of what we call that. And decision-making is in a way, a type of um, intelligence in a way. But um, I guess nowadays, most people think about artificial intelligence when they hear that it's really that Kind of more, you can think of it like programs that are made to kind of do what people do in certain things, automate things, and take care of certain things that maybe people in computers really can do pretty well. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what the definition of AI will be.
2: So, something is intelligent if it can make a decision. Yes. So th- that includes everything from the autocorrect in your email to a self-driving car, right?
1: Yep, that's right.
2: Okay, and why do we need these systems to be safe? I can imagine, but let's hear it from you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, for starters, um, a lot of uh, research in AI um, has been mostly focused on how do we see or how do we achieve things that we think are not even possible, right? Like for the longest time in the artificial intelligence field, most of the researchers focus on Okay, what can we do? Like, can we make, for example, a system to solve this problem? Like, I don't know, like fly flying in the in the sky with a, you know, with a plane, or can we make uh, something that seems to be human, right? Um, but the thing is, it's until much more recently, that now we are asking ourselves, like, okay, so a lot of this technology is coming now to the public, right? A lot of this technology is being used now every single day. Uh, we pretty much are surrounded by AI now, um, so. Like any technology, what are the risks? What are the things that could go wrong? And that's something that incredibly we don't really know much about. As a matter of fact, a lot of the, a very important field within AI is deep learning, which is the thing that we mainly kind of think that does the more fancy stuff like driving a car, flying a plane, speaking to us even. And we see that as what we call a black box. We don't know what's going on in there. And that's truly really a big problem because, you know, if a car decides to make a decision that looks weird to us, we don't really know why it did it to begin with, and that can be hard to fix. Instead of having a car that drove itself by some kind of mechanical system, we can kind of find the problem there. But with a new network, it's more challenging. So, yeah.
2: So it sounds like now is perhaps a super pivotal time because now people like me and Jenna who are not in the field of artificial intelligence, we have access to all of these technologies and we can use them. And so does, are you saying that now is kind of a crucial time to be thinking about safety or do you feel like we're kind of playing catch up to years of not thinking about it? Um, it's a little bit
1: of both. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not to say that there has been no research in safety right in the past in AI, but at the same time, for how fast we've been moving, how, for all the things that we have achieved, it's also incredible how we don't really care much on about safety. We implement uh, many systems, and like I work on a project with the Air Force, for example, and I create a system uh, to pretty much help uh, guide a plane in the air, but... there was never really like much to think about like the safety aspect of it, right? So I think it's until very recent now that first of all, we are seeing very widespread uh, use of uh, AI technology, which definitely it's important to know what can go wrong, right? But also at the same time, um, it is a little catch up. Again, like a lot of technology, we don't even know, you know, what could go wrong with a lot of it. So um, we're trying to find what can go wrong and how can we fix
0: it, well, thinking about just how wrong autocorrect can be during my texting, I can't imagine what can go wrong in a car. So what do you specifically focus on with like the AI systems? Is it a specific application or just kind of in general?
1: Yeah, so I will say that my interest is kind of a bit twofold, okay? So I do have an interest in the applied set of artificial intelligence, but I also have a very a very big interest in the theoretical side of it. Um, so what I mean by applying theoretical AI, it's there's a distinction here, okay? So apply artificial intelligence, we can think of creating those systems that get implemented in the real world, do the driving in the cars, find the plane, all those things, right? Um, that's more than more apply artificial intelligence. Um, there is some aspect uh, of safety that goes into that. So for example, we can have like layers on top of like a system to help ensure that actions being taken, for example, are safe according to some kind of ethics rule or some kind of previous knowledge of what's a correct or a wrong action. And then there's a theoretical aspect of artificial intelligence in which I study if any of those systems are natively, like intrinsically safe. Like, is there certain um, problem setting or certain algorithms that are much harder, for example, to fool or to attack or hack? You can think of it. And so my interest with those two things is to apply them towards making systems that not only have very good um, theoretical grounding so that we can ensure that those systems won't get fooled as easily, but also being able to apply into real life. So you can think of it like a full stack kind of thing. I work all the way into the theoretical side of things, but also I want to work in the apply, ensure that the systems can use a theory and do it in a way that is computationally efficient and also ensuring that it actually works.
2: Before we talk about what your actual day-to-day of being a researcher in this field looks like, let's talk a little bit about why robots, if I can use that word, mm-hmm. or algorithms or whatever, machines might not be able to do the things that people can do in in a safety kind of uh, kind of setting. So when we were talking earlier, we were using this example of kind of the machine not being able to tell between what what did we say a blueberry muffin and a chihuahua Mm -hmm. and there's something you were explaining that there's something about the way that a machine thinks where it can identify parts of a whole but is maybe not able to like get the context of though this tan looking thing has like dark marks that could look like a face it's a muffin and not a chihuahua and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that like what is challenging uh, that makes these machines not able to identify things the way that we can and how does this show up as a safety issue
1: yeah absolutely um i guess to start first um i would like to kind of bring to attention that even we don't understand sometimes the things that people do right mm-hmm. like sometimes um like people do things that look illogical all of those kind of things um we don't really understand much about intelligence and the human brain. And it's the same thing in artificial intelligence, right? Um, AI, uh, uh, sorry, AI doesn't fully focus on how the brain works, okay? Like we try to do things that seem intelligent through different uh, approaches, okay? Uh, The most common one is with neural networks. They are the ones that have given the most promise to do very complex, hard things to do and um, that they actually approach or surpass human um, performance. So the thing here is that unlike humans, right, we have a, a complete different style of learning usually. Like everybody learns in kind of a different way, but at the end of the day, it's kind of a mystery. Like people learn, but also people learn differently. And so now very similar ways with AI. And so, for example, you brought up the, the, the question of like, the dog and the muffin, right? So um, AI, or specifically deep learning, and which includes neural networks, the way that it learns is that it looks at examples of something and you give it labels, which is kind of like, oh, this is a dog, this is a muffin, right? And it has to figure out by its own what, you know, how to determine what is what, right? Us humans, um, we have very different and very broad, Kind of, you can think of it like background knowledge of things, right? Um, that's what I mean by everybody kind of learns a little bit of a different way. Um, everybody can learn things, but everybody may have a different way to connect things to their minds because everybody has very different experiences, right? And so I, I think that's kind of what makes some people say, I have a hard time learning this. while well, some people have an easier time learning something. They simply just have different experiences. For someone, it's easier to connect to those new things that may be hard for other people because they may not have so much things to connect to that. And in a way, it's similar with AI. And the thing with um, a lot of the systems is that they learn um, in a very interesting way because um, anything that's in the data, they try to pick on that. And so, for example, with a dog and a muffin, um, a dog, I mean, when the AI looks at it, Um, All it can see is a two D picture, so it has to figure out what's a dog, what's a muffin, just with that. Us, we can see a whole dog in three D. We can touch it, we can feel it, we can hear it, and um, an AI system cannot. It only has that information. So because you don't have that background knowledge of what the world is even, sometimes right, Uh, it may have a hard time really figuring out what things are, and may learn things that maybe don't. Specifically, actually are what we think will help us recognize a dog from a muffin. And so that's why it's very common that you have those issues that, and they may get confused. Oh, that looks like a dog. Oh, that looks like a muffin. But in reality, I don't know, like a, like a whale even, right? Uh, they, that can happen actually a lot. So, um, so yeah.
2: And the same kind of misrecognition that happens with between a dog and a muffin can happen on in an autonomous vehicle and have very severe repercussions. So part of what you're researching is how to build those uh, those precautions into the algorithm, right?
1: That's right. And um, for those, I guess, interesting papers, um, there's actually a paper called Intriguing Properties of Neural Networks, which is kind of the paper that really kickstarted all of this interest in the era of safety. And it's a paper from 2014 in which they showed How to introduce uh, what they call invisible noise, which was a very small, tiny, uh, at least for us humans, indetectable uh, change to picture that made the, sorry, they managed to completely fool an AI system from thinking that a picture was, say, a koala to something completely different. And for us, it looks perfectly fine. There is nothing Mm -hmm. that's changed the picture, but there's been changes. And so that really showcased that important uh, issue that we have here. So.
0: Do you think that AI systems will able be able to get complex enough that they won't be tricked? Or is that something that's either a not possible or just so far away that we really need to be thinking of these issues now?
1: I actually think that complexity could even complicate things actually in the safety side of things. Because the more complexity that we have, we usually see in the AI field that um, it tends to happen what we call overfitting. Uh, sometimes um, you can think of like an AI system learning just from the data that you're giving it, but not really learning to do the thing you're asking it for, okay? So a good um, analogy here is you can think of, for example, um, you know, like in, in math class, right? We learn about like a curb line, um in statistics right like we may have uh, noise and what we mean by noise is like some randomness in like that curved line so an ai system only can see like little random points that follow some kind of line um and so what i mean by overfitting is that we can have for example like we can draw a line that goes up and down up and down touching all those little points and that will be a valid explanation of the data technically just from that uh, data that we're giving it but that's not the most simple. Uh, accurate way of, of thinking. So it could be like a system kind of looking at a, a dog and kind of in a way just um, kind of in a way comparing like, okay, you know, like the hair, like this specific thing, the eyes, you know, and if there's a little small change, oh, that's not a dog anymore, right? So uh, complexity can actually make it to learn in a way better, but it also may learn it to catch things that they're not really there and that that don't actually help. And sometimes actually simplifying a model like an AI system can actually help a lot uh, to be more stable.
2: When you talk about these this A- these AIs, these machines, uh, and the way that I hear people talk about them, they commonly compare them to humans and the way that people think and the way that you and I and Jenna and everybody else thinks. And obviously that's all different. But what do you think of our tendency to do that to compare this artificial intelligence to human intelligence is there anything lost in translation is that analogy too firm or what's um, your take on that
1: yeah actually i think that has to do more with the history of the field in itself mm-hmm. because truly um the field was interested in or well, at least before like you can think right now right like um there is many um kind of times in history that we could think that that's whenever ai as a film a was born Um, but really every single time in the past, you know, whenever we think that, you know, like AI was being studied or something like that, um, truly was people asking like, what exactly is intelligence? Like what is action decision? Right. And so a lot of the earlier, uh, more kind of, you can think of formal study of artificial intelligence truly was studying, okay, how do we make computers think like us? Um, and at the time it was just merely more of like, okay, you know, we just curious, we want to see, can we make things behave like human, can they do this, right? And so a lot of the earlier studies kind of were focused on that. And so um, I think that's probably part of the reason why there's that huge interest and in, or that huge connection between the intelligence and AI, right, like a human intelligence and AI, because truly that's how it started being studied.
2: And do you think that people are still, or researchers and engineers are still using, like, the human brain as a model for how AI thinks?
1: Yes. And heavily, actually. So Mm -hmm. um, so we like you mentioned, we use it as a model, but we don't do it exactly like how Mm -hmm. the brain will work. Right. Like the brain, usually, for example, it's a network of neurons and each neuron sends uh, you can think of it spikes, uh, little electrical signals from one neuron to another. And so when actually you look at what currently we, it's like close to that, it, it's very different. And the reason why that is, because we are not actually making a brain like the real human brain, we, we're we making programs, we're making software. And there are certain limitations we have to use, Uh, you know, like a, in this case, like computers speak in binary. So we have to use very specific um, languages, right? To describe everything. And it's not like we are building, you know, like with our hands, if that makes sense. So, um, so yeah, but. Um, like well, some of the biggest fields again like I mentioned earlier that, like I will say the biggest field right now that shows the most promise in artificial intelligence that has done a lot of the big things like chat GPT or image recognition all those things is neural networks and they are truly inspired by the human brain the way that the brain kind of works which is uh, a lot of neurons or a lot of things interconnected sending information in each other and so that uh, we actually call it emergence so it's small very simple things But when you put them all together, they do something more complex that the individual couldn't do. And so um, that's what happens in the brain. At least that's what we believe. That's an emergent Mm -hmm. uh, characteristic of the brain. And so we kind of use that same thing with neural networks. We simplify the whole thing that happens in the brain instead of using numbers and multiplication all those things. And actually, we can do pretty amazing things just by copying that idea
0: very interesting hearing it all and understanding that there's kind of also that big limitation of like human emotion that is missing from a machine especially in decision making I was reading a book and it was talking about how an AI debate with a human they were missing the point of asking the audience questions because it was just spewing facts and I was like oh it's like you'd think that a fact would win an argument but it doesn't always Mm -hmm. so as a person who spends most of her time in a lab on a lab bench I have figure that your research looks a little bit different. So what does a day in the life in this research look like?
1: Yeah, so um, it is pretty busy, I will say. And like <laughs> you say, it, it, it's not just spending time like, you know, like a lot, right, like with chemicals and all those kind of things you can imagine, right? Um, as an AI researcher, I guess, my time gets spent in two places, at home and at the university. So, like, I guess I'm really going to describe like a typical day for me. So I will usually wake up and um, take a shower, you know, have some lunch and all the breakfast and some of those things, and then I will read papers. That will be usually the first thing I will start doing. Read papers one, two hours. Um, I like to do in the morning just because that's when my mind's freshest, and so I can really do that. Uh, so I spend a good time reading papers. Then I usually come back here to the university um, because I like to work sometimes here. It's more quiet and I can fully focus on what I do. Um, usually I come here and whenever I'm working on theory, that's what the first thing I will start. So my first, I guess my second thing as I have reading papers, I will now start working on whiteboards pretty much, right? Uh, writing equations, you know, going back to my computer and studying something that I don't remember right now, right? Going back to the whiteboard and changing things. Um, and then I will go, um, as I guess as it progresses, I will switch into now the applied uh, side of my research, which tends to be creating experiments. And by experiment, I mean like creating code to test some hypotheses that we had. And so I will go now into doing coding. So now we spend almost of time in a computer now, um, probably connected to, uh, and hi, um, sorry, I'm trying to remember the name of the the whole acronym. Um, pretty much supercomputer, that's what it is. Uh, High-performance computing. So. Um, a computer cannot do a lot of the experiments I ask it to do. It takes a lot of power, a lot of processing. And so I, a lot of my experiments, I have to pretty much do them in a supercomputer to do that. So, so yeah, so that's kind of what I do. And then on top of that, you know, also uh, during my dad, will go to class right now. I'm first-year PhD student, so I have to go take some classes. So do that, too. And also, um, sometimes I do have to talk with other students, you know, about research, too. Sometimes help them out. So, um, So, yeah, but... Yeah, that's kind of kind about it. Like, I guess I'm all, a little bit on the whole place. Paper, whiteboard, computer. So, yeah.
0: So, I know some people find coding fun and will do it as, like, a hobby or activity. Since you do it all day at work, is it still a hobby for you or does that stay at work?
1: It's actually a pretty interesting question. Well, I guess, pretty interesting thing to point out. Um, when I started actually um, being interested in technology uh, in general, um, I actually got interested first in computer science and coding, sorry, and that was completely funny, but anyways, but I got into coding first, um, and I loved that for the longest time, but then when I was in college, I think that I realized that, you know, coding the whole day, uh, it was kind of grueling to me. Like I, especially in coding, like um, in, like for a software development job, um, it always felt like they would tell me what to build, but I like to build my own thing. And so actually in research, I get to do so many different things. I don't have to just be coding one thing at a time, right? Like I I can be coding different things, but also I don't have to be coding. I can work on math. I can read my papers. You know, I can be talking about research. I feel all these things, you know, make it so that, um, I don't get tired about coding because it can be tiresome sometimes. Like sometimes it gets frustrating because things just don't work. And it's, believe me, especially working, creating code that nobody has ever made before because it's research, there's a lot of errors that often happen. And so I feel because I have this huge variety of things, it doesn't make it boring to me or, or tiresome. I think that uh, diversity of activities make it so that when I get, go back to coding, I feel kind of excited ready.
0: I understand your frustrations with coding. My limitations are the base level at R. So Mm -hmm. anything higher than that, I'm very impressed. (laughs) If you're just joining us,
2: we're talking to Jose Aguilar on Inspiration Dissemination. Uh, We're going to take a little break and we will be right back.
1: UIT Media Hub is your one-stop shop for all of your printing and production needs. If you need a poster for a class or a presentation, we've got you covered with our large format printers. Making a video, taking photos, or doing a podcast for class? Check out our private studios for photo, video, and audio. Don't have a camera or the right mic? No
2: problem. We check out all of the equipment you could need for your projects. Our team of digital media experts also offer production consulting in our studio spaces. Media Hub is located on the main floor of the Valley Library, and you can find more info about our services at beeve.es slash mediahub. Calling all musicians. I repeat, calling all musicians.
0: Are you a musician?
1: Do you want your music played on KBVR's airwaves? Well, so do we. Our station is always looking for new ways to support artists And what better way than letting our listeners hear your voice? Contact the KBVR Music Director at fm.music at oregonstate.edu to get your music on the radio. You rock, so let's let everybody know
2: it. Welcome back to Inspiration Dissemination, where we're talking with Jose Aguilar, who is a first-year PhD student studying artificial intelligence, researching how to make artificial intelligence safer. So... Let's talk a little bit about um, misconceptions that people might have about your field and what you do. Uh, What's something you hear a lot when you're at a party and you say that you work with AI? What are you, what do you, what's the first thing that people often say to you?
1: Um, I will say that the first thing that they say is like, um, oh, so you are the one working to uh, replace us all (laughs) kind of thing. So, um, I mean, it's. You know, like that's it's, every time they tell me that, I always say, well, I'm actually the one kind of doing the opposite a little bit mm-hmm. because I'm the one showing how unsafe it is, you know. And know I'm also working on the safety too. But yeah, um my perspective on at least on how AI should be used personally, it's not to be to use like to replace people. I think that artificial intelligence should be something that instead should we help people to say be more productive have more fulfilling lives right but it should not be to replace jobs and things like that um but and just kind of throw it into a second misconception that a lot of people think is that i work with like uh i guess not so much robotics but they they, they think i actually work like on a brain or something like mm-hmm. that like i'm working like on a some kind of you know like like the movies right like sky or something like that and working in like you know, like to—I don't know. Like it's—they always tell me, like, like oh, like are you like making like robots to like uh-huh. do things or, or those things? Like I don't really work with robots, but it's kind of funny to me sometimes. They think like oh. Like, I'm working with, like, a open brain or something like that. Yeah. And def- I don't know. but You're like,
2: building a those little starship robots around campus, that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, even more like that, like, people think I'm, like, kind of, like, creating, like, something, like, a general artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. something that can speak or something like that, you know, like a robot, like, that would be, like, a human, which I always say, like, nope, and we're probably a lot of decades away from that, so...
0: It's important to, like, recognize the diversity of that field, too, that in your head it's like, oh, it's just a human robot, but really it's every little thing that you do interact with every day. Um, what would you say is your, like, biggest goal of your research? Like, when you finish, what do you want to say that you've been able to accomplish?
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's a question I actually ask myself every day. And, well, not so much I ask myself, I tell myself every day mm-hmm. what I want to do. And that is that I want to work, one, to create artificial intelligence systems that can help people, not replace them again. Help people that people can trust it and they can uh, help in making their lives more fulfilling. And so at least that's my big kind of goal. That's what I will say. And more specifically, I want to achieve that through doing research. So to show what are vulnerabilities, what are problems, where can things go wrong and so I think for me, uh, I will hope that at th- the very end of my career, um, I will hope that at least I hope, for example, safety to become something uh, that's always considered whenever a company needs, you know, create a new AS system or, or say, you know, we're working on a new thing that maybe, like, uh, has a critical safety aspect to it. Um, and I would like to, you know, hopefully have a huge amount of research that can help scientists and anybody on it that wants to create AI systems to have access to good tools that are theoretically grounded so that they can trust it, at least in a way that it's for sure is going to work, but also that it has been shown that it works. So, yeah.
2: We talked a little bit before, and you're kind of mentioning it now, kind of when safety becomes ethics. Mm-hmm. So the way I understand it, safety in an autonomous vehicle might be making sure that that AI can tell when there's a green light, put it simply, or even when there's a sticker on a stop sign that makes it look like a a traffic light and that can fool it, making sure that that machine won't get fooled. Ethics might be working into the code or the algorithm that governs governs that vehicle, a way to, uh, like a priority system. So the classic kind of trolley problem, um, if there does come a crisis situation with the vehicle, is the vehicle going to choose to save the passenger or to save the pedestrian? So where does safety and ethics interact in your day-to-day?
1: Yeah, um, so I will say, I guess, with my research specifically, um, I will say that I mainly take the perspective that a saved system is going to be something that doesn't change a lot by its inputs. Um, so I guess kind of like you can think of this from the ethics perspective that, um, I, I guess it's so much the ethics perspective, but so kind of what I'm working with is kind of create a platform that it won't change too much, uh, regardless of the input, right? So that then, for example, if you want to introduce some ethical uh, constraint to it, right, then I'm hoping that my uh, technology or my research, right, will help it so that that ethics, whatever ethic um, ideology you put or ethic constraint you put in, right, doesn't change either whenever you have a new input, right? So that could be, for example, like, I don't know, like, let's say that we make a decision on the trolley problem, right? Um, I don't know, like, save the people outside, um so my work will be kind of focused on creating the system so that's stable and so that whenever it comes to that point it doesn't say like freak out or there oh it's only like a little change like i don't know maybe someone's wearing a jacket or something like that and makes the system think it's a rock so at that point it's like oh okay well you know like and now i want to protect the human because I'm not a person there right mm-hmm. so that's kind of what my research and ethics may kind of interact right i kind of create the platform they Groundwork, so that maybe if someone later wants to say train that system to have a specific ethics code, it stays that way.
2: I just want to clarify one thing because I think what you said is is really crucial to help understand what you do. So you work on could we call it like an algorithm or an, an AI, um, and you work on making this AI as robust as possible to be as safe as possible, so that it can then. Be taken and applied to all these different situations, to uh, the autopilot plane, to a self driving vehicle, to whatever else. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And um, just to be more specific, to maybe something to help, like maybe better understand what I do is. Ethics can be seen as a high-level uh, abstract idea, right? So ethics is something gets learned or you know taught. It's not like objects or like everything you know that exists has intrinsic ethics, right? Like ethics is something that in a way we learn, and so same thing with the systems, right? Um, but kind of the systems I work with, like you said, like algorithms. Really, it's the it's the thing that will get used to then learn, and so and also I guess at the same time not just learn that. And also, we will use that thing that's learned to apply it to something. So, so yes, yeah, so you can think of it like I'm working on like the architecture of the brain. I we'll try to make something that's solid, so that whenever it, whatever it learns, it stays the same, and also applies it in a very in a way that uh, you can think of it like we expect it to to work.
0: Well, did you always like from a small child be like I want to study AI? Like that is what i'm doing or what brought you to where you are today
1: oh that's an amazing because it's been a very long journey i will say um i mean as any child probably when i was a kid i wanted to be a cop i wanted to be a fireman i wanted to you know be a doctor uh but honestly i didn't really get interested into i will first into the field of technology until i was in middle school in mexico because i'm originally from mexico and um, in middle school um i got really interesting coding uh, i was I, I found that very fascinating i was the only one that i guess was talking about coding back then so i was kind of a little bit lonely but i remember i really wanted to um this will sound so crazy i wanted my dream when i was a kid and even actually when i was here in the u.s and even when i went to college was i want to go to work in a company and i want to be in a cubicle and i want to have the freedom to work nine to five hopefully longer than that every single day because that's how much i love coding you know and so i now i think about him like oh man i cannot believe that i used to really <laughs> i used to hold my own like uh scrum meetings which scrum is like um um, uh, a tech, not a technique, but like a, a style of doing software development you can think of. And so I used to call my own things agile. And so, so yeah, so, um, then, um, in my hometown Colima, that cause I'm from the West of Mexico. Um, it, it, there was not a lot of opportunities for studying computer science, really. There was a university in my hometown, but it was only offering, I think, uh, bachelor's in like something called mechatronics and like that it had to do pretty much with like technology in general and I don't know like I was more interested in decoding of things and um, I had a sister and a brother in law that lived here in the US in Oklahoma and they were like well if you're gonna come over here uh, we, can, we can help you and you can study high school and then you can go to college and study computer science and so that's what I did I came about myself kind of in a way because my parents and all my my finally stayed back in Mexico but I moved with my sister in Oklahoma and so fantastic years amazing time I went there to high school all four years and um, then I went to the University of Oklahoma there and uh, I remember that's when I realized ah I don't think I want to do coding every single day every single time uh, and it was because I saw just how grueling it was really like my brother-in-law he was actually a suffer developer too and I saw how hard it was on him and and as much as I love coding, I, just, I was just like, I just don't know. Like, I, uh, I'm now working on projects, and, and I don't know. Like, I just don't like being told really what to build. And I kind of didn't like that I couldn't really study things to the absolute depth. And in coding, you have to be switching to technology very often. And so um, I was, at the time, I remember I was looking for an internship. I ended up landing a research assistantship at the National Weather Center in which I did research. And that was my first uh, contact with AI too, actually, because they asked me to build uh, a system to predict uh, hill size. And actually, I went to two conferences at the American Meteorology Society. I even won uh, uh, for best presenter award in one of them. And so I remember that that doing all those things really showed me uh, just how fun it was. Like I really love working with artificial intelligence, just working to predict things that seem so complicated, and not even we understand how they worked, right? And research at the same time, also, I was just so excited to be able to study whatever I wanted, really, you know, to be able to go as deep as I wanted to. And that's whenever I go, I got into AI. And later, whenever I was working on, um, on, a, on a project with one of my professors uh, at the University of Oklahoma, in which um, we kind of were doing some research on safety a little bit, uh, very theoretical in a way. And that's when I started reading papers and realizing, like, oh, man, nobody cares about much about safety. Like, a lot of the things that are there out there, they don't really use much safety. And then I joined a project with the Air Force, and that one, too, same thing. It's like, oh, man, like, they put a lot of trust, you know? NASA puts a lot of trust, too, you know? And so that's what got me very interested in safety and kind of the more, like, the robustness, the, the you know, the, the things work the way that we intend them to do it and that we can trust in that sense. And so... And so, yeah, and then that got me into wanting to go for a PhD because research is my favorite thing to do. I love AI. Well, PhD. So that's kind of my story on that. So, yeah. <laughs>
2: well, we're so glad that you're here at OSU and here at Inspiration Dissemination. Uh, we've only got a couple more minutes left and we want to go out on the questions that we like to ask all of our guests. So first up is what's your favorite part about your research?
1: Uh there is so many things I gotta say, but I think my favorite part of it is just that fulfillment of the, just being able to learn, you know, like I just love so much being able to study such complicated things. They are very hard. Like I, um, um, a lot of my preparation and my previous research was applied. i um, it's the first time I am jumping into the theory side of things and man, is it hard? It's really hard. It's a lot of things I've been to work with. and. That fulfillment of being able to learn those really hard things, that's my favorite part, I got to say, that I'm able to uh, not also just learn that. And I'm also able to apply it and be able to show this amazing thing. So that's, I think, my most fulfillment part of my work.
0: Our second tradition is if you could give a piece of advice, whether that be to your younger self, a fellow graduate student, an undergraduate student, the future of A.I., what would that piece of advice be?
1: Yeah, so I will say, I have layers to that piece of advice. Um, for everybody in general, I will say is, um, I will say, know how to take it easy. Uh, one thing that I've always seen is burnout. And that's a very big problem, I feel, especially in grad school, but not just grad school, honestly. Anybody, you know, anybody that works, really, or does anything, really, uh, can sometimes experience burnout. And I will say that's very important to know when to... Take a break when to relax a little bit for example, me personally i wake up in the mornings and i spend a whole hour just to myself in which i kind of meditate i think about everything i've done everything i want to do and everything i will do in a way and that gets me inspired and makes me feel very relaxed and during the day i usually work 15 minutes and i take a 10 minute break to keep me from getting overly tired so i will say it's very important to um to really know you know to pace yourself and then for grad students more specifically um I guess more specifically to the um, students in AI, I will say. Um, I, I will say that never be scared to speak to your peers. I uh, Something that I've always seen in grad students, and uh, I mean, not just the AI department, but in general, uh, because I was a grad student in Oklahoma, I'm a grad student here, and I've spoken to many grad students, is that many of them don't wanna talk with other grad students sometimes. They, there is like a disconnect sometimes. And I feel that if we could have a much closer um, community that we can, discuss research with each other. I think that would be fantastic because it would help so much maybe create new ideas and new research.
2: Excellent. Well, Jose, thank you so much for being here on ID. And our last tradition that we have is we have a little outro song. So... I was very delighted to see your choice. Can you introduce the song to us and tell us why you chose it?
1: Yes, so I chose the song Oklahoma uh, from the musical Oklahoma. So um, I actually chose that song because, um, as probably you guys can think, uh, oh, sorry, as you guys can see, I really had a very life changing experience in Oklahoma, really. that's kind of what sent me this, the path I'm right now even uh, my wife that I met I met her in Oklahoma my family you know like I had such an amazing time in Oklahoma and the reason why I picked this song specifically is not just because I lived for 10 years in Oklahoma but because in Oklahoma in this radio station that they used to play it I think um, every single day at 5 p.m. they would play the Oklahoma song and <laughs> so me. And especially on Fridays, they would play it the whole song because I, all during the days, like other than Friday, it was only like a little short section. Mm-hmm. But during Fridays, it was the whole song. And I remember that I used to love to just tune in at five, you know, and and just listen to the song the whole time. And I did that throughout this whole 10 years. And so for me, this song is kind of nostalgic, but also it's a song that was there a lot whenever I was going through all my life experience that I had. So it truly is something that it's very. Kind of like a song that's very a big part of me. So,
2: yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing it here with us. Thank you, Jose, for being on ID. And everybody else, enjoy Oklahoma. They
0: couldn't pick a better time to start in life. It ain't too early and it ain't too late. Starting as a farmer with a brand new wife.
1: Soon be living in a brand new state. Brand new state. Gonna treat you We're
0: Gonna give you barley, carrots and potatoes, pasture for the cattle, spinach and tomatoes. Flowers on the prairie where the June bugs zoom.
2: Plenty of air
0: and plenty of room. Plenty of room to swing a rope.
2: sweeping
1: down the plane and the waving wheat can sure smell. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five- star review on Apple
2: Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRid.
0: This theme music was performed by the OSU drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.